Thanks for listening to In 16 Years of Endometriosis. I'm Amy Corfelli, and I hope my podcast will support and empower you. There's two kinds of episodes, my chats with my best friend, Brittany, and my interviews with renowned excision surgeons, subject experts, and endometriosis advocates worldwide. My podcast is a platform for different voices and points of view. Each person expresses their opinions. Their participation on my podcast doesn't mean that I'm endorsing them or that I always agree with them. The information presented here is educational information only and not medical advice. Always consult your qualified physician before making any changes to your treatment plan. Today we continue our discussion with Kimitha Redman, who is a family nurse practitioner as well as an endometriosis patient. In part one, we spoke about tips for seeking medical care. And in today's episode, we'll speak about the biases that one can face. Kimither, tell us about trauma-informed medical care. And do you think that patients are receiving trauma-informed medical care? Unfortunately, just because of a lot of the barriers that we've discussed, not only from the practitioner side, but also just as it relates to the countless stories that we know of that not only of friends, but even ourselves, the experience that we have with providers. I unfortunately do not think that we are getting trauma-informed medical care as the norm. That is a gold standard that I don't think our system is well set up to facilitate because trauma-informed care really does require, one, the time to be able to even build rapport with a patient and enough time to help the patient realize that I see them as a whole person who is not just here to waste my time or to get something that they want. Like, no, this is a whole person. Likely this person has experienced traumas in their life and really the impact of their lived experiences is now in front of me right now, you know, and how they interact even with the healthcare system is informed by their personal experiences of medical trauma, gaslighting, dismissal, even just like cultural uh, challenges that they grew up in, like all of these things that is informing who they are as a person and is going to inform how they interact with me, how they're going to tell me information, how comfortable they're going to be about talking about certain topics. Like, uh, you know, patients have no problem telling me about the symptoms that their arm is having, but let me ask about their vulva. And it's, and it's like pulling teeth sometimes <laughs> because if culturally that wasn't something that was acceptable, then it's going to be a challenge. So I really try personally to assume that every person has experienced some form of trauma. That's right off the bat. I could definitely hear another provider saying, but that's not true. I'm sure not every person has. Who cares? I'm going to step into the point just with that assumption that every person has experienced some form of trauma. And my job is to avoid adding any additional trauma to that person's lived experience. I think that's a, a great charge for a provider to have when stepping into a visit, whether you are a new provider or 
you've been a provider for decades because you can be fantastic at your job. I mean, you could be amazing. You could have done thousands of surgeries. You could have amazing success rates. But sorry to have to break it to you. You too can contribute to a patient's trauma. You are still capable of being influenced by biases and are capable of actually doing harm, even in the process of you doing good. So I want providers to think of trauma-informed, honestly, I want providers and patients to think of trauma-informed medical care in that way. And it's important for us to make sure that we're not just talking about trauma-informed care just with providers, which is often the case, because <laughs> I, I really think who really needs to get the education about it and know what it is are patients, because then they need to know this is what I, this is the care that I deserve when I step into a medical office. What trauma-informed care shouldn't be is just, you know, adding a checkbox on the intake form that asks, have you experienced um, sexual trauma, you know, in your past or as a child? Okay. Though I appreciate providers asking about trauma, I don't know about you, but I've experienced that question being added to the intake forms and absolutely nothing being done with that information. That is such a big pet peeve of mine. And I know it's because of my research background that I absolutely cannot stand it when documentation um, is being collected with no actual purpose (laughs) whatsoever but to say that you asked it, you know? I want providers who are starting to hear this term more and and healthcare facilities that are trying to figure out, oh, you know, this concept of trauma-informed care, we need to make sure that we're doing our part, that they understand that it is not just about adding a few extra questions to your intake form. It, It is about humanity. It's about seeing someone as a whole person. It's about seeing that person as if they're yourself. I wish I could describe my level of empathy. Like, I am not, I am no angel. I'm no perfect person that just has this like amazing level of empathy. But my quality of empathy makes it really hard to work in this profession because I really do see patients like they're me or my mother are my sister because for me that's the that is a easy way for me to ensure that I treat this person with the humanity and dignity that they deserve but the harm in that is 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 the emotional um effort that it that it's taxing it's taxing to be an empathetic provider <laughs> it, it really it, it it really is but I wouldn't have it any other way you know so Combine that with being a provider who has also been a patient who has experienced trauma. I really, you know, just take this so seriously. And I really encourage my my colleagues to to do the same. And, you know, do it, do it in a way that, of course, you can still provide care. And you I know you still have to work within the confines of the of the issues within the office that you work in, but there's nothing stopping you from seeing the humanity in a person. And there's nothing that's stopping you from walking in with the assumption of this person has been through a lot. The last thing I want to do is add additional trauma to that. 
I find it interesting when practitioners then become patients themselves because I think a lot of times practitioners are just not aware of the power that their words have. I mean, even in this interview right now, like you and I have both referenced things that have happened to us more than 20 years ago. <laughs> we're we're both around 40 now and and we vividly remember point, appointments that happened to us when we were in our teens because those continue to have an impact on us. You know, a dismissal, a lack of empathy, an offhand comment, things that can seem really small. These can follow a person and stay with them throughout their lives. And because as we keep saying, you know, when we go to the doctor, it's because we're suffering deeply. Our quality of life is low. We are looking for answers. We are feeling lost. We are feeling hopeless. This might be the 20th doctor that we've had the privilege of seeing, and we still don't have any answers. <laughs> or still, we're gaslit. And that changes a person. It changes the way that we see ourselves. It changes the way we trust ourselves. And it changes the way that people around us look at our condition. You know, if they're like, okay, well, no doctor can find anything wrong with you and it's been five years, so maybe you're just making your symptoms up. Maybe they're just psychosomatic. And I think that we've all experienced that with endometriosis. Something that I've noticed in my advocacy is that the endometriosis community has experienced an amount of trauma that I didn't even know was possible. And so when we have something little like a sore throat and we need to go to the doctor, it can put us in the throes of anxiety because doctor's appointments have been mostly negative for us, a mostly traumatic experience. People think of trauma as these enormous capital T trauma events, but trauma can be something like, I said my symptom and the doctor laughed at me. Or I said no to a medication and the doctor bullied me about it. And these experiences may seem so small when we tell them to other people, but they're not small. And it can make it really challenging for us to get the care that we need in the future. I, yeah, I've literally have gone to counseling for the trauma that I've experienced in, in medical environments because I didn't want it to hinder my ability to provide care because I have to always um, keep in mind that providers are people too. They get sick, they get health issues, they have chronic conditions. We're not dealing with like a superhuman here, but providers, we, we get really good at compartmentalizing and dissociating. And though I understand the psychological necessity to do that sometimes just to be able to get through our work day uh, you know effectively we do get that what this patient is going through could be me we need providers who are seeking to be the type of provider that they would want and providers that are not going to dissociate so drastically that they forget that these are human beings that are in front of them and they forget that this human being could be you. Let's move on to talking about the biases that practitioners can hold or that we as patients can face depending on the identities that we have. 
Can you tell us about biases that you faced as a patient or biases that you've come across as a practitioner working in the medical field? Some of the biases that I've observed just working in medical care, uh, unfortunately, has definitely been related to um, pain management. I definitely have observed white people receive better treatment, better pain management um, compared to people of color. Uh, I've also seen the role of socioeconomic status and how that can impact a provider's, whether they do it intentionally or unintentionally, provide uh, a lesser quality of care to someone who maybe is low income or uninsured or on Medicaid versus someone with private insurance who um, has a well-to-do job, you know, et cetera. Uh, I also have seen patients be labeled problematic (laughs) for multiple reasons, either because they are strong advocates for themselves or they have um, a long patient health history. Me, personally, if I see somebody who has a really long medical history, like they have like 40 diagnoses, first thing that comes to my mind is who has failed this patient? Because (laughs) obviously something is being missed here that they have all of these diagnoses that tend to be just a whole bunch of different symptoms and catch-all diagnoses, but they're still doing so poorly that likely something has been missed. But unfortunately, Other providers will see that long list of diagnoses and sometimes just be like, oh, here we go. I'm probably dealing with someone who is a hypochondriac or hypervigilant or somebody who is just always going to the doctor for something. And then because of those assumptions, treating that patient um, differently. So I feel like I I saw that pretty early, even in my nursing career, bias kind of play out, you know, and see it in action. I could see who, which patients were being labeled drug seekers and which weren't, even though they might have been both asking for pain medication for the same type of issue. Like I'm very observant <laughs> with things like that. And and I always keep those things in mind, you know. So now for myself, I personally have strong um, mistrust for medical professionals, so much so that I decided to become one. So I knew I could trust one. That's how bad it was. (laughs) You know, but obviously, you know, that was because of experiences that I was having as a, a young Black woman, you know, in the healthcare system being treated uh, differently and knowing that there's something wrong here. Even when I was younger, I knew when that something's not right about this. So like, for example, you know, I, I remember my first well woman exam telling the nurse, telling the provider, I had not yet been sexually active. You know, in fact, I, I've had a hard time trying to be sexually active. And they kept asking me that. I must have got asked if I was sexually active like three times. And all three times I said no. And yet I was, they you know, still did a pap smear, did, still wanted to do a full pelvic exam, still used a full size, you know, standard size speculum. And obviously that was not a good experience. <laughs> it was, it was uh, an awful experience. And I think ultimately they just didn't believe me. Uh, I think that my virginity was just not believable uh, to, you know, to them. 
And even after that appointment, like with a typical well woman exam, and they try and give you a little little sexual health education afterwards, they, they're giving me like set set education about safe sex practices as if I didn't just tell them like multiple times that that I'm not sexually active. And unfortunately, if they were paying attention closely, they might have been able to pick up that I actually was pathologically having issues with even my ability to be sexually active, which of course, 20 years later, you know, turned out to be endometriosis. So um, I think it was just too easy for them to just put me in the category of being a sexually active Black woman, you know. Also, another form of bias that I've experienced is that because I'm a Black woman, when I finally, you know, pushed to have someone look into why my periods were so painful, I finally got a pelvic ultrasound done. And when reviewing the imaging report with me, the, the OBGYN said, oh, you just have a couple fibroids, nothing to worry about. This is something a lot of women have, especially Black women. So it's not a problem. In actuality, yes, I did have fibroids, but they were actually quite small at that time. And at, at that moment, I wasn't a, a medical professional. So I just said, oh, oh, okay, I guess I am literally missing multiple days of work and bleeding through my clothes because of fibroids. But when I look back, those fibroids were barely even like bigger than like a pea. Like they were small fibroids and it was just uh, very easy to just brush off my pain and my symptoms by just saying it was caused by fibroids. And that I think that was a multitude of things. I think that was not only just like diagnostic laziness on the provider's part, but also was the fact that fibroids are so common amongst Black women and endometriosis is not something that comes to mind often um, for providers, let alone when they have a Black patient in front of them because of the history of endometriosis being considered a white career woman's disease. So it was never even brought up as a possible issue for me, even though I was presenting with symptoms that certainly did not coincide with like my fibroids. But it was just so easy to just keep saying they were just fibroids. I I basically was told that was just fibroids for 15 years. And it took me learning about endometriosis and diagnosing myself and then seeking out a endospecialist to actually confirm that I had stage four endometriosis. Unfortunately, we learn as clinicians that that certain people just have a certain profile to them. And Black women, the profile is fibroids, obesity, STDs. Like we just get, we create these stereotypes when we're studying medicine because we're still human. We're, we still have our biases. So if, if we're being taught about how certain diseases disproportionately affect certain groups, if someone who already has biases towards the group learns that information, they kind of just take that information and fit people within a box and say, this is what a person with endometriosis looks like. This is what um, somebody with like fibroids looks like. You know, and that is something that unfortunately is super problematic that happens way too, way too often. And then, of course, I won't even sum up the dozens and dozens of times that I've had other (laughs) bias 
like um, situations where people have um, assumed that I wasn't, that I'm not married, assumed that I had STD when I had pelvic pain issues, even when I would tell them I'm not sexually active, like just a lot of those things that honestly a lot of people can relate to. I've been prescribed antibiotics for non-existent STDs <laughs> or UTIs it, just because it was easier to just believe that I had an STD or UTI instead of something like like endometriosis. Uh, I've I also very early on had a hysterectomy offered to me. Like literally, I think I was like 30 and was very flippantly told to have a hysterectomy for my painful periods and fibroids that weren't even all that large. That that really like blew my mind. That was another that was another doctor that I ended up ghosting because I was like, if you just flippantly think that you can like that, you know, you can just toss my organs. Uh, and I'm I haven't even like decided if I wanted to have children yet or anything. It was it was not um a patient centered conversation. In fact, in fact, there was a patient message that she sent that like, you know, you could just do a hysterectomy. No big deal. And like, wow, how how peculiar um, it's that. And also, I have to also mention that just because of the amount of women in my family and, and amongst friends who have had fibroids, my observation lines up with the evidence with this here it, that Black women are more likely to have open um, myomectomies done or open hysterectomies done as opposed to minimally invasive. And they tend to be offered those solutions a lot younger compared to, a, to white women. So it kind of lined up that I was literally 29, 30 years old being offered a hysterectomy for my fibroids because my ability to have children just, I guess, didn't, didn't matter, you know, to the provider. Kimither, thank you for sharing about your personal experience with the biases that you faced as well as what you've seen working in the medical field. I know that there's many more that you've faced and seen as well, which we were talking about prior to recording. Biases are very real, and we all hold biases. I think sometimes we think of explicit biases. You know, like, I don't specifically like someone who holds X identity. But a lot of the biases that we hold are implicit biases. They're subconscious, and we don't even realize that we have it toward a group of people. We don't realize that we're treating a group of patients differently because of a bias that we hold. I want to point out an episode that I did with Tenny, who is the host of the podcast, Not Defined by Endo. And in our episode together on racial bias, which was number 44, we mentioned this, that practitioners are taught to group patients quickly so that they can make a diagnosis. That is a kind of part of that training. Um, you know, I see a patient, I have to size up this patient to see where their symptoms fit, but then it's really easy to fall into biases here. Okay, I've seen more patients um, of this race or this gender with this condition, so it's like those boxes become smaller, right? So, for example, fitting a Black person into the endometriosis box. Well, if the doctor has this idea that Black people fit into the fibroids box and not into the endo box, then they may not think of endometriosis as a differential diagnosis for that person. 
And this is a huge problem. And there are people who don't think that implicit biases exist, um, whether they're ignorant or in denial, like, I don't know. This is something that I've experienced among my friends who are white cis men who haven't experienced the biases that I have in seeking healthcare. And so they've doubted what I've said is my experience seeking medical care as a woman, right? So then it's like not only I'm facing these biases that are hindering my care, but then people are actively telling me, oh, well, those biases that you claim that you're facing aren't even real. Um, yeah. They are real. <laughs> um, unfortunately, like we are, we are as pro- as providers, we are trained to gather a lot of information just from how the patient like presents themselves. And EHRs, electronic medical record, often has options to document a patient's appearance, like unkempt versus like well groomed. I completely avoid those boxes because uh, I really don't find them to be very helpful. There's only very few, very few situations that I think would be helpful for me to document the patient's appearance. Otherwise, I just think that information could be misconstrued. And this is because I know that clinicians judge patients based on their appearance. So like if a patient is wearing name brand clothing, then they assume, oh, they got money. They're more deserving of quality health care. But what if the patient is a low-income patient in a you know, like like a free community health clinic and they're wearing name brand clothes. I definitely have had people judge that patient's like eligibility for these services because they just happen to be really good at thrifting, you know? <laughs> Same with like looking unkempt. The assumption is like if they look unkempt, document unkempt, but I I don't because I know that a clinician might read unkempt and think, oh, this person must have mental health issues. They must be ill. They must be poor. They must be homeless. They must be on drugs. To me, it's just too loaded to document those types of observations. So I tend not to. The boxes that people are put in, I know I mentioned earlier, like a black woman kind of gets put in a box of like fibroids, obesity, diabetes, hypertension. Um, But I also know that because of our training, especially because our training oftentimes fails to talk about the social determinants of health that actually is the cause behind the disproportionate health issues, is that instead of saying, for example, African-Americans have have an increased risk of development diabetes and explaining the reasons for that, like the systemic racism, the lack of equity within the healthcare system, um, possible intersecting issues like socioeconomic status, whatever, because our medical training often does not pull in those social determinants of health that explains that health disparity. You have medical providers who come out of school just thinking that black and brown people are just inherently going to get diabetes, hypertension, or destined for sickness are always going to be ones more likely to, to engage in risky behaviors because of higher incidence of like STDs or HIV are more likely to have non-compliance. Like I find it so dangerous that we, that we don't address those social determinants of health better in, in medical training. 
and we just get fished all this information about these disparities without under, without understanding of the background behind it. Also, uh, another thing that I've seen too is the concept of frequent flyers. Um, we call them super utilizers. I hate, I hate that name. Oh, I hate that term. I hate frequent flyers and super utilizers. Not a fan <laughs> of the term because that people who get that label are before they even open their mouth, they're already labeled as problematic, as a strain on the system, as likely being there with malicious intent, such as looking for drugs or trying to get a work note so they can get out of work, or they just want to be taken care of and like leech off the system. I mean, all of that can start to pop up into people's head before the patient even opens their mouth to say what they're there for. And mental illness, um, unfortunately, too, is, a, is one of the biggest ones as well. And can you imagine if you're someone who fits into more than one of these groups? If just someone with mental illness alone is more likely to be treated um, like every single thing that's wrong with them is related to their mental illness and is less likely to get quality care because their mental illness is almost blinding the provider. And they just think, oh, well, maybe it's related to your mental illness that your foot hurts, you know, like just this really silly things. But imagine if you're someone who is Black, has a mental illness, frequently has to use the, the ER because you deal with chronic, poorly managed pain and happen to have a history of, of drug use. You just have so many, so many things like stacked against you in being able to access actual quality care. That's the reason for a lot of the health disparity is a lot of the bias that gets embedded within the healthcare system that ends up impeding people actually getting the care that they need. So I'd love to ask you, what advice can you give to us for facing biases in doctor's appointments? Do you think that there's anything that we can do? Or is this really a case of, well, I think I need a new practitioner? So I really struggle with this one. And I hope that one day I can have some clear answers that isn't so risky, for one. Um, because just like we said before, we, we, we find ourselves needing to tread carefully in the language that we use with providers. Because providers' ego can cause them to get defensive or or they might even try to wield their power uh, even more if we point out that they're doing something perhaps not well. So if you have a doctor who you suspect is leaning on bias to inform your care, then sometimes one of the best things uh, to do is to ask questions that force them to broaden their thinking like, what are some other possible causes of this condition? Or what data from your exam and my lab results is leading you to believing that this is my problem? One question that I'm really trying to help patients understand, because it's just such a powerful one, is what are your other differential diagnoses in this situation? I completely accepted as a high level uh, thing to understand and to, but really in school, <laughs> every provider uh, is actually taught the danger of just getting a patient and just sticking a diagnosis 
and treating it. There's a lot of danger and just a lot of risk in doing that. Instead, we're taught to take a systematic approach to the diagnostic process where we're collecting information from the patient first, because that information is what's most important. Then we are collecting information from our physical exam. Then we're collecting information maybe from that patient's like medical history, like their past history, their family history. And once we have all of the information, we figure out what are the pertinent, what what's the pertinent information and what are all the possible diagnoses, which is why we call them differential diagnoses, that could explain this patient's problem. Very rarely is it just one diagnosis. We're actually more so trained to make sure that we have two or three diagnoses, with one being the primary. Once we have that primary diagnosis, then we start to move forward in creating a plan of care that addresses that primary diagnosis. But we don't throw away those differential diagnoses because we need something to fall back on if our primary diagnosis ultimately ended up being incorrect. Because in medicine, we all learned (laughs) that is not perfect. So there's a chance that you can say, you know what? Walks like a duck, talks like a duck. It's a duck. Let me treat it like a duck. And you can be wrong. And now you're starting from scratch. That's why we're trained to have two to three differential diagnoses to lean back on so that if I go ahead and treat you for this one issue and then that treatment didn't work or I ran a test and that test shows that my primary diagnosis is actually likely to be incorrect, then I'm supposed to lean back on that second and third differential diagnosis that I came up with. Anyway, I don't want to lose people in the weeds here, but that's why it is not a foreign concept for a patient to ask, what are your other differential diagnoses? Because if they don't have any other differential diagnoses, they did not do their due diligence as a clinician, period. So if someone is saying, for example, you you come into, and I hate that we have to do these things when we're not feeling well, but let's say you go to the doctor, you're having all these symptoms, you're having uterine type pain that's like around the clock, It's not just during your period. They tell you that you likely have PID, pelvic inflammatory disease, which is a disease that's largely driven by STDs that progress into the uterus. Not only do you, one, have to even know what that is to even be able to question it, but then you also have to realize, wait a minute, why is this provider assuming that I have a disease that's driven by STDs when they didn't even ask me? If I was sexually active or didn't ask me when I was last treated or sorry, last tested for for STDs, you know, so I, I, I hate that we have to be so informed as patients just to even be able to question certain things, because absolutely a lot of times it is biased when somebody is being told, oh, it's PID when they literally have no, no, you know, nothing really to work off of beyond your your symptoms. I think that's a really helpful question to ask. What is it about my exams or my labs that led you to this diagnosis? Because you're right. I mean, there should be a thought pattern behind it. And I think that would have been really useful when I was 19 years old and I had this doctor who totally traumatized me 
And granted, he didn't know what the heck he was talking about, but I didn't know that he didn't know what he was talking about. And he did an ultrasound for my period pain. And then he was like, no, it's not endometriosis. It's anxiety. So he literally denied that it could be endometriosis and then blamed it on anxiety. And that would have been a really useful tool in my arsenal to say, well, what is it in the exam today that we did that led you to believe that my debilitating pain on my period is from anxiety? Um, because the truth is, nothing led you to believe that except maybe your misogyny and lack of knowledge. And of course, I didn't know that at the time, and I didn't realize that he hadn't done any kind of mental health workup, any kind of questions, screening. You know, all he did was do an ultrasound and then blame my period pain on anxiety. Um, so that's definitely, definitely his own preconceived notion and bias. But I didn't know that. Uh, and I think it's hard to know that. It's hard to stand up for ourselves. And even if that same exact thing happened today, you know, like almost 20 years later, I don't know what I would do. I'd probably just ghost the doctor because when you're working with a practitioner who is so ignorant and closed-minded, it can be really impossible to move past these biases. In theory, we could confront the doctor, we could demand better care, but I think in reality that's often not possible for a multitude of reasons. Even ghosting the doctor isn't always possible if, like for example, there's really long wait times with other doctors or with our insurance we can't get a second opinion without a referral from this doctor. <laughs> so sometimes we're stuck. You know, we're stuck with a racist, misogynist, homophobic provider. And I want to recognize that looking around for a new doctor is a privilege that not all of us have. But hopefully with our conversation today, it can help shed light on biases. And I love that all these books are coming out about misogyny in healthcare, ableism, fat phobia, racism in healthcare, so that we can become more aware and not internalize this discrimination and think that it's our fault that we were treated poorly because it's not our fault. And being more aware may not change the biases that we face, but hopefully can help us to change the way that we look at ourselves. Absolutely. And because that, that, that's a big part that makes it harder and harder each time is that if, if every appointment we have that crashes and burns, we absorb all of the blame in, in that event. It just makes it even more challenging the next time for us to stand up for ourselves. You know, so, so it's, it's important for us to know what is the provider's role? What is my role? And what are the things that are within my control and what are the things that are, that are not? I now realized that before endometriosis, I often avoided interacting with the healthcare system because when I would, you know, I would, I just, I hated it. You know, I, 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 so I tried to make it the bare minimum. And even when I would have to get things like physical exams, I would just dissociate and just kind of have an out-of-body experience. And I now realized that I did that because medical appointments really just always reminded me of physical pain because I experienced just so much medical trauma over the years. And that 
pain that I would often experience would always result in me feeling not only vulnerable, but like stupid and broken and broken because I was basically convinced by medical professionals and, you know, statistics and society that just the fact of me being a black woman just meant that I was just broken, you know? So that was old thinking for sure that I have since changed. I now understand social determinants of health. I now understand why black women, you know, disproportionately like are affected by certain health conditions. And it largely is due to institutionalized racism and the bias that we've been discussing. So, but I wish I could say that becoming a medical writer automatically fits everything. Um, I was still doing the whole mental checkout even after I became a medical provider. <laughs> like, um, but I now know that I can I can sit down and I can speak for speak up for myself. I can recognize that I still have mistrust with healthcare professionals. So it's important for me to make sure that I do build relationship with providers that actually I can I can trust and work with. And I really, really probably most importantly recognize that it's okay for me to be scared, nervous, vulnerable. You don't have to dissociate. You can just recognize that and provide yourself with the supports that you need to still be able to get through that appointment and and do what it is that you need to do to get what it is that you want out of that, out of that, you know, appointment. Now I have no problem calling a provider out on their, on their BS. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm respectful for the most part. I have not only a very good BS meter, um, when talking to providers, but I also am comfortable with advocating my needs, even if the needs reveals a vulnerability, like needing my partner to be present for pelvic exams. There's nothing weak in that. That is a need, so I'm going to communicate it. Needing to be dressed when I um, initially had that conversation with them, that is a need and I have a right to to express that need. So I'm a lot more comfortable with communicating my needs. I'm also comfortable with stopping uh, a, a provider when I'm no longer comfortable. Consent is an active thing. That means that at any point in time, consent can be withdrawn. I can stop and say, okay, I'm no longer comfortable with whatever it is that's happening. And I have the power to stop what's happening at that moment and so in order to protect myself, you know? So I want that for all patients. I want patients to have a very good understanding of what informed consent means. I want them to know that they have full autonomy over their body and who who gets to touch it when and when and and how. And I want patients to know that they can advocate for whatever it is that they need, whether it's additional education whether it's certain um, measures that they take while they're doing exams, really there's very few things that is like off limits. Like they should feel comfortable communicating their needs and and knowing that if they need to fire a provider and find another, that that is okay too. So thank you, Kimather, for speaking with us today. And in part three, we will welcome you back to discuss the systemic problems in the overall healthcare system. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of In 16 Years of Endometriosis. I'd love for you to help me spread this information by sharing my podcast in your social networks or leaving me a review in your podcast app. For more information about endometriosis, you can follow me on Instagram at in16yearsofendo or go to my website in16years.com. If you want to support the hard work that goes into making these episodes, you can buy me a coffee through my website. The music on my podcast is called Heavenless by Epic Inspirational Adventure, provided by Jamendo. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.